0: This podcast is brought to you by the book The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is Terry Sue Harms, author of The Strong Searching for My Absent Father, just out by She Writes Press. Welcome, Terry Sue. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted you're here. And what a wonderful book, what a wonderful body of work you have, but this is a wonderful book. And and it makes me think about one of life's great questions, which revolves around how we navigate that space between the stories people tell us about ourselves And the version we really long to have of that tale, because this is where that book so beautifully sits. How do we ever move away from that story we've been told? You were told that a married man abandoned the illegitimate children he had outside his marriage. You were one of those. How did you come to doubt this tale or feel you had outgrown it or want it to be something more?
1: Let's start there. That was quite a journey. I think that As the story tells, my mother died when I was 16. And in literary terms, I would say that was my inciting incident. I did a Mm -hmm. significant turn. I had been an obedient daughter. And my biggest objective was to please my alcoholic mother and stay out of the firing line of her volatile personality. And when she died, I really had to Step up and take some agency for myself. I certainly didn't have that word agency as a 16 year old, but it was the inciting incident that turned me to understanding who I would be in the world, separate from who my mother told me I should be in the world. And Mm. going from there, I think I really believe that I had an internal drive to expand the story. I knew the story around me was not the whole, the whole thing. And so mm. I came by that naturally. It's a gorgeous concept.
0: I knew the story inside me was not the whole thing. And I think it's something that perhaps not universal, but it occurs in many people. And your story gives such hope to people who have that feeling that perhaps what I've been told about myself to me is not the whole tale. And so I've also been waiting a long time for Just the Right Writer to have a conversation with about family memorabilia and how to handle it when writing memoir. Some people have very little, granted, Mm -hmm. owing to like displacement or family trouble. But on the opposite side of that spectrum is you, who is almost (laughs) burdened with what is it can only be considered remarkable material. So can you set this up for our listeners, please? Of course, it's the title of your book, The Strong Box, but what was it that you were given that gives you this title for this book? Can you talk to us about that, please? Mm.
1: The Strong Box was actually something my mother had. It was a metal file box that she kept her most important papers. And it was just a small Little metal file box, smaller than a toaster, or about the size of a toaster, I suppose you'd say. And uh, Mm -hmm. it had random scraps in it. It had a a wooden cigar box that had little bits of ephemera. But among that was uh, a couple pay stubs of hers. There were movie tickets, and there was a beer bottle opener. Just peculiar random collection of items. But there was also in there Mm -hmm. these two attorney letters that referenced child support not saying whether it was one child or two. And it was always a question in my mind if my brother and I had the same father. So that letter, those two letters between attorneys didn't answer that question. Could my mother have had me with one man and, and my brother with another man? I also have two other siblings. But the contents, we moved a lot. We lost a lot. Everything we had was always shabby and broken and torn. And that was the same with the, items in the strong box, but they were important enough to her that she packed them from one residence to another. So while she was burdened with the disease of alcoholism, there was a strength in her. And so the fact that this father mystery was solved in part through the items I found from that strong box, that box also represented the steely strength that resided in my mother beneath the alcoholism. And I feel that I too have some of that steely strength. Absolutely. The reader takes that
0: title and begins the book with the curiosity of the contents, but absolutely positively recognizes the inheritance, not only of the contents, but of the steely strong box that your mother is and that you are. Um, by right. And I just love the ability that you saw to use that in its myriad ways. How old were you when you first opened it? And what about those contents changed for you as you aged?
1: I was 17 years old, going on 18, somewhere in the middle of 17 and 18. And at first, when I read them, my story includes my inability to read. And so Mm -hmm. when I first opened that, um, I, I took it surreptitiously. And so I knew it was, you know, at that point, my mother had been gone for a year, but she still held a lot of power over me. She was a strong personality. And I was truly apprehensive about looking into her private collection of items. And so at first, when I looked in there, I wasn't sure what I was looking at in terms of those letters, I didn't really comprehend completely what they were saying. There was a copy of her divorce decree from her first husband. And I certainly didn't understand any of that. But what I found on that first opening was a copy of my birth certificate. And there I saw my father's name, but it wasn't what I had been led to believe. And so at that point, I again had that gut sense of I don't know what the whole story is, but this is not it. And so it just (laughs) kept nagging at me. But I was so uncomfortable by it that at that point, my coping skills were not to be inquisitive. My coping skills were to put it all back, put it back in my closet, much the same way it had been in my mother's closet, tucked in the back corner. And I put it away for a couple more years before other events took place in my life that gave me the courage to go one more time. And I I kept dipping into that strong box, looking for clues, trying to put the pieces together. And I just never got a satisfying answer. And so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it just kept being there talking to me from the corner of the closet, but I wasn't listening.
0: Well, it's it's a fascinating story of resilience of determination. But it's also, as you've just mentioned, a story that includes illiteracy, alcoholism, illegitimacy. And in the hands of many of us, those are and would remain causes for shame and attendant silence. But then you learn to read, really read. And I wonder, I mean, I certainly view it as this power, right, to command yes. knowledge, to direct knowledge, to deploy knowledge. So speak to us about the fulcrum that your own literacy became to this tale of empowerment.
1: Well, in my early 20s, I was just made painfully aware of my inability to comprehend the written word through my my work. And somebody had used the word pathology and I didn't know what it was. And when I asked, the person was incredulous. And it wasn't that they shamed me, but I shamed myself. I knew, you know, I need to do better. Um, Backing up just a bit, I had tried to write a letter to an address that I thought might be my father, but it was so terrible. My handwriting was terrible. We didn't have word processors back there. My punctuation and grammar were atrocious. I copied Mm -hmm. one for myself that I kept, so I, I now can look back and think, oh my God, this person received this letter, and what must they have thought? But I thought... Mm-hmm. with this pathology incident you know maybe if i could learn to read maybe i could learn to write and if i could learn to write maybe i could write my father or this person another another letter and do better and if, if i could just make myself look good maybe he would give me the time of day and not having any pride or sense of again the right to own myself and and to ask for answers So I did start reading, I went to the library, I got the biggest book I could find, and I just told myself, I'm going to read every word. And I, you know, I had enough literacy that I could pick the words off, but I couldn't string them together and get a sense of what I was reading to. And so it Mm -hmm. was an incredibly painstaking endeavor. But I did have that power of conviction, and so secretly, when nobody was looking, when the room was quiet, I would try and get through another few sentences. And fortunately, the story was compelling enough that it did grow, and my first book I ever read cover to cover was the autobiography of Arthur Rubenstein, the classical pianist. (laughs) And when I was in the library, I was just looking for size. I didn't know anything about literary genre or have any preferences for any particular type of book. I just wanted a big one. I was like, this is my Mount Everest. Ah, And it was a 600-page autobiography, and he told a terrific story, and by the end of it, I believe some of my disability is about being able to discern the black letters from the white space. The white space really jumps off it for me. And so I say, you Mm -hmm. know, because they teach us to read by the shapes of the black space, not the white space. I was just, you know, I was just (laughs) blind to the, I couldn't get the words. But with that practice, really telling myself, don't go on until you know what you've just read. I think I trained my synapse to start you know, connecting. And so mm-hmm. with reading, then I I just took off from there. Ah, oh,
0: and we're so grateful that you did. There are so many tricky places in writing family memoir. When I work with writers, I f- always ask them, "Who's who's writing this book? And they always think that's an insane question. But we get further into the question as I explain that, Are you writing it from here now at this age with everything you know? Are you going to try to reanimate the person you were at 6 or 8 or 10 or 12 or 15? Who's writing it with what amount of knowledge? And it makes for some real potholes for the writer, right, as you try Mm -hmm. to navigate that space. And your story is then compounded in its complexity because it goes on for decades. So at, at what point in your actual life chronologically did you decide to write this book and then how did you make the decision of whose point of view to tell it from what what age you were um, to tell it from
1: I was in my 50s when I started writing this, and I actually had written another book before, a work of fiction. And that work of fiction was really, again, a personal challenge. It was showing myself that I had done a 180 from that illiterate child to not only, it took me 11 years, but I ended up graduating with a bachelor's degree in English from Mills College. And so not only graduating from college, but then I thought I had this story and the right people showed up at the right time. And I was able to write this work of fiction that's titled Pearls My Mother Wore. And it was just a a story that hit me. I I wanted to tell a story where the losers were the winners. And Mm -hmm. so it was a story that came to my imagination, wouldn't let me go, and I got it done. So when I was in my 50s, that story, the fiction, people were like, oh, I read your memoir. And I was like, no, none of that ever happened. It was emotionally autobiographical <laughs> in a lot of places, but none of those things ever happened. Now I have to write a memoir, and I have this crazy family story. How could I ever write a memoir? Well, uh, mm-hmm. when I finally got the the, the piece that uh, answered the father question, it was like, this is just too much. I had, I had at this point been immersed in storytelling enough. I knew a good story when I, when I saw it. And then I was like, how am I going to write this? Well, I thought memoir mm-hmm. would be so much easier. I was always telling myself in the word memoir, the first two letters are me. Keep me in the memoir. This isn't about telling their story. It's about telling my story. So that really anchored me. But I really went into it thinking, oh, you know, I know the characters. I know the story arc. This is going to be a piece of cake. Well, it took me about four <laughs> times more time to write a memoir than it did the book of fiction. And that was a surprise. But I, again, had that that compelling need this story, you know, I would wake up in the middle of the night with parts of it, you know, I couldn't go back to sleep until I got them down on paper on both cases. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that uh, keeping me in the story was the anchor that made it so that I didn't feel like I was telling on anybody or ratting anybody out or that's, that tends to be a big hurdle for memoirists, I think. I think so. I think
0: the the thing that I spend a lot of my time talking people out of is I'm going to set the record straight. I'm going to get back at so-and-so. It's like, no, no, <laughs> it's never a blunt object. It's literature. <laughs> so let's keep it on the story level. And keeping it on the story level when writing Family memoir, there are, of course, because there are people involved, differing versions of the same story. Everyone involved, has their own version by the nature of experience, which means they're going to have a different version of the truth. So let's talk mm-hmm. about the truth. Mm-hmm. You just said very clearly that your truth, keeping you in the memoir was deeply important to you. And, and I think that's a great guide. But what do you do when your brother says, that didn't happen, or it didn't happen that way, or why do you care about this? Or any number of other things that other people in the tale, believe happened.
1: As I was writing, I was aware that I was telling this dysfunctional family story and that it felt important to me to put the reader at ease that they were in the hands of a capable narrator, that I wasn't leading them down this path of, you know, disastrous family narrative only to push them off to the end. So I did um, <laughs> give. Early on clues that my point of view would be dramatically different at the end than it was at the beginning. Early on in the story, Mm -hmm. I I have a, a line about how making my mother happy was a critical objective for me at that time. I said. So I put these qualifying statements. If I wasn't sure what somebody was thinking, I would say, I'm not sure if that was even true, but this is the way it hit me. So that the reader would always understand that I was clear that that my perspective was subjective and that I was only telling the story as it arrived in my life. And I also, although I established that I was telling it from a place of clarity, I unraveled the story on a very straightforward timeline so that the reader discovers information as I discovered it. So it it reads like a whodunit. And I always say, instead mm-hmm. of solving for a death, it was solving for a birth, mine. And mm-hmm. so it has the, the momentum of, what's she going to do now? What's going to happen next? So I don't preempt the story with, you know, I knew better or anything like that.
0: Right. I think the structure of the way you tell it absolutely supports the story itself and the way it unfurls the way that you chose to tell it mirrors the story that you have to tell. And it's a very important aspect of the success of the book. I, and, and I really compliment you on that. So many times people want to use devices that are counterintuitive to the structure itself. When the story is, is for instance, about coming to clarity about something, jumping around in time doesn't mimic that and, and actually undermines the reader's confidence in the narrator. And as you just said, you had a narrator decision to make here. We have to trust you. This is a lot of material. These are a lot of obstacles. And so I think you did a great job with making those decisions um, about how to to structure it. And And I can't help but wonder if it has anything to do with what you also do for a living, which is you're a hairdresser and a salon owner and I just can't possibly do this interview without asking you, this is a place of traditional storytelling and secret keeping. We do, after mm-hmm. all, tell our secrets to those in the mm-hmm. beauty industry. We've all done it. So <laughs> how did that inform you? I, I, here's a great leap on my part. It's an enormous assumption. You might have had the perfect training <laughs> for the <this> story <laughs> in what you do for a living. So how about it? Yeah, you know,
1: tell me I'm out of my mind. That's Okay. No doubt about it. My career was perfect for shaping me into the person that I've been. Uh, it's something that I absolutely adore about being a hairdresser is, you know, I think between hairdressers and bartenders, bartenders sometimes hear, hear the story, but mostly they're running around serving everybody. With the salon, it's you and the client and I am a talker. I enjoy, you know, hearing people's stories. So when I would say, you know, maybe something would come up around Father's Day, you know, oh, you're doing anything for Father's Day? Or somehow, as I would get to know my clients better and better, my unguarded demeanor would open the door and my clients would start telling me stories about their own, you know, oh gosh, you know, my aunt, you know, we never knew for sure who her father was or just different stories. And I have very intimate relationships with these clients, but at the same time, I'm not going to show up at their family gatherings. I'm not going to, you know, hold Mm -hmm. anything they say against them or, you know, keep a record. It's just a place to share thoughts and air ideas that normally stay kind of tucked into the darker places so Mm -hmm. it is a wonderful profession plus with not being able to read but needing to earn some money as a young person it was practical there isn't a lot of reading and writing in hairdressing so it was a perfect profession for me and I'm very grateful to to all of my clients for supporting me They, you know, we just come to love each other.
0: Yeah. Also, I think there's something that you know about storytelling that was so deeply reassuring to you, perhaps, that because of the experience, I can't help feeling that it made those obstacles along your way. I mean, the, the yeah. alcoholic parents, a biological father who does not want to be found alternating stories of uh, versions of the same story. I imagine that there's just something, some kind of faith in story that, that, that you are
1: provided in that work that allows you to just keep going because. You know, our, our appointments are, you know, half an hour, an hour, a couple hours long. And so it's like, get to the point. So what happened is really kind of the, the narrative arc that happens in the salon. (laughs) And so you're absolutely right. It's it's like, that's how you have to tell the story. You know, people just want to know, so what happened? (laughs) Right. Did you leave him? Yeah,
0: absolutely. (laughs) That's gorgeous. It's such a fabulous place. And I miss it so much in COVID that mm. um, the, sometimes, you know, you're, somebody, the person who's cutting your hair perhaps is telling you a story, but the woman next to you in the chair, she's got a better story going on. And you're getting this stereophonic sort of life <laughs> stories going on. I always leave there just whirling. Um, I, I have a terrible <laughs> habit of, of listening in. But hey... It's a ripe territory for it. So, yeah, it's great. Well, uh, speaking of story, you had previously written this novel and you knew how to do that. And you've got these many obstacles in this piece, in, in this life of yours. And you could have, at any point, as you were making the decision to write this book, decided to fictionalize it, which would have allowed you to choose how it ended because the ending, per se, could have happened, you know, the way you wanted it instead of perhaps the way it did happen. Just talk to us a little bit more about, because a lot of times people say to me, oh, maybe I should just fictionalize my memoir. Maybe I should just grab a hold of it in a way that I can't in this unresolved story that I've got. Just give us a little encouragement or help. How can people see their way clear to finishing a book when, you know, it might be easier, might feel better? Right to just kind of fictionalize an ending and jump out of it, but instead pursuing it to what ending you you were allowed to find in your tale.
1: How did you keep in there? As uh, I had finished writing pearls, my mother wore. Uh, the aesthetic in me is like, oh, well, this needs to be balanced. I need to tell a father story. So I did think after I, you know, kind of relaxed after getting pearls my mother wore done and said, you know, God, I'm never doing that again. But then, you know, oh, well, maybe you could do a father-themed story. And as I was hunting around in my imagination for a father-themed story, and maybe it even being one where a daughter was looking for her father, I had very little experience with fathering and so every time I tried to draw a father character it just fell flat and I spent years sort of thinking how could I write something and dabbling and it just never really sung the way the other story had and um so, like I say, it wasn't until I got this critical piece of information that the story pivoted and there was born my father's story. It was the real life story. And it felt so like, you can't make this stuff up. If I had written my story as fiction, people would scoff. They'd be like, oh, come on. <laughs> so, I had to write it as, as the real deal. Otherwise, it would just, I would i would be like, oh, please. Um, <laughs> and so I did have to just say, if I'm going to tell this story, and this is a powerful story, then then I'm going to have to do it straight. Mm, people would scoff. Yes, they would have. That's absolutely true. I think a lot of
0: people think it's getting too hard here. I've got to fictionalize it. It's actually would have been far harder to believe as a piece of fiction than as memoir. That's a great point. The thing that I find fascinating about, many things I find fascinating about the story and the way you chose to write it, it's not about the big reveal. The big reveal you utilize. It was a motivation to tell the tale. It helps you get there. But it's really about the path home in the largest sense, the path home from finding out. I mean, what you do with it is so important. I say to people all the time, memoir is not about what you did. It's about what you did with it. And this is a great example. This book is a great <laughs> example of what the knowledge you gained propelled you to do with it. Like, you know, you had miles to go before you sleep after a big discovery. So, how did you make that decision? I mean, it's true, absolutely. But I think a lot of people struggle with where to end a book. And that miles to go before we sleep, that act three, that what we do with what we finally learn is such an important step. So talk to us a little bit about crafting that, what you do with that path home.
1: Well, here I have to bring in my editor. She was the one who saw the epilogue in the book. And just Mm -hmm. encouraged me over and over to wrap it up with that. And I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. that she did. It makes perfect sense at this point, but I can't lay claim to uh, entirely knowing that that the epilogue was going to be the way the final page would occur. Mm. So... No, I kind of feel like I, I represent the opposite end of the, the writing spectrum. Most writers you hear, you know, oh, I, I couldn't get enough books as a kid. My family, we always were reading and I was always getting books. I, I was not that. And I don't write by hand. I don't write in a journal. I, I don't write messy first drafts. I really, I need it to be all tidy, tidy, tidy. I'm constantly tidying up as I work to the end. And I just work very much intuitively. It's like, Um, When I hear people say, oh, I could never write, I tell them, you know, chances are you actually would be a good writer because that judgment is, you know, good writing when you see it and you're thinking, I can't get there. But once you do get there, once you hit the note that you're really after, it's so satisfying. And so as I was working (sighs) to the end and, and got the epilogue completed, there was just this internal bloom of satisfaction. I knew this was right and I could stand behind it. And so I think that as we write, if we're not satisfied, or at least this is my experience, when I'm not satisfied, if I get stalled out in my writing and then I go back a page or maybe a little bit, I discover, ooh, I said something that I wasn't quite comfortable with and my psyche is almost preventing me from going on. So I go back, I find what was it that just was, you know, maybe, maybe it was just a word, maybe it was a whole passage, but it was something that didn't really land subconsciously for me and clean it up and then just keep moving on. And so by the time I got to writing the epilogue, I knew that I could stand behind this story. It did feel complete.
0: Mm, I love that phrase, internal bloom of satisfaction. There is an internal mm. bloom of satisfaction. It's kind of the story arc. I mean, you, you go from this quiet sense of dissatisfaction with the story you've been told about yourself to this internal bloom of satisfaction in that epilogue that we understand what's been given birth to, right? We, we get mm-hmm. at the end of your tale, the value of knowing and the value of having a version you can live with. And uh, mm-hmm. I can't thank you enough for that. And, and, and for coming yeah. along today. Thank you so much, Terry Sue, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. And, and, and I really enjoyed the book and, and have
1: enjoyed talking with you. Same here, thank you for having me. Really a pleasure. I, I so admire the QWERTY podcast, and I'm just thrilled to be among your guests. Delighted. The author is Terry Sue Harms. The
0: book is The Strong Box, just out by She Writes Press. In all, you can see everything the author does at terrysueharms.com and see the press at shewritespress.com. I'm Marion Roach Smith, and you've been listening to Courty. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. Courty is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont, our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening.